One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She has no idea the technicalities of photography. And when I would read those things, it hurt so much because it was true. Hello and welcome to the Way Up North podcast. This is Jacob, one half of Nordica Photography, organizers of Scandinavia's only wedding photography summit, Way Up North in Stockholm, Sweden. You are listening to the first episode of the Way Up North podcast, in which my colleague and the other half of Nordica, Cole, is going to interview the 10 speakers who are coming to Stockholm in October. So this is the first of 10 episodes, and in this podcast we'll hear the world's probably most well-known wedding photographer, Jasmine Starr. Before we get into that, I'd like to mention all the fantastic sponsors who have helped making this event happen. And uh, one of them is Nikon. It's pretty cool for us personally to have Nikon on board as main sponsors for Way Up North, because we've used Nikon since the day we started our business. Uh, And also because we know that a lot of you who don't shoot Nikon will be very impressed when you see the, the D750, which we think today is the best wedding photography camera there is. But more about the D750 and Nikon as we get closer to the event. Let's get back to Jasmine Starr. She is based in California, and as long as Cole and I have been doing wedding photography, she's always been someone who we've looked upon as a real major player in the industry. That's why it's so cool to have her presenting at Way Up North in October this year, as well as to have her as the first person to interview in this podcast series. So without further ado, here we go. Jasmine Starr, March 2015. Is it recording? I think it's recording. Yes, it is. Here we go. Oh, God. Here we go. All right, Jasmine Starr, who are you? What is Jasmine Starr? What is Jasmine Starr? (laughs) I am first and foremost uh, a daughter of amazing parents. I am sister to four incredible, annoyingly amazing siblings. I am wife to a, a man I totally don't deserve to be married to. And I'm the owner of an adorable white dog. And lastly, I am an entrepreneur and photographer based in Orange County, California. Is Orange County where you where you were raised along your side, your four siblings and wonderful parents? (laughs) Um, I was actually uh, raised in closer to Los Angeles. So L.A. was home for the majority of my life. And um, right after I got married in around 2005, my husband took a job with a startup company in Orange County. And the promise was always like, we'll, I'll, we'll move from LA, but we're, we're going we're gonna to get back to LA. We're going to get back to LA. And almost 10 years into the business, uh, we you know live in Newport Beach and that's where we call home. And we never really got back to LA. Maybe that's in the cards for us. Um, you know, LA and Orange County is, is about like a 40 minute drive. But um, 
the the county lines are, it, it's very distinct in Southern California. So um, Southern California has always been home, although Orange County has been rather new for me for the last decade, which I guess isn't all that new. <laughs> so what was it like growing up? Uh, you have lots of siblings. What what, were, what did your parents do? Uh, let's see. So my my mother was born in Puerto Rico and moved as a child to New York, and my father was born in Mexico. And he immigrated with his family on a 72-hour visa, and um, the visa expired, and my father's family never went back. So uh, he st- the family stayed illegally in America for about 10 years before uh, he enlisted in the United States Marine Corps to fight in the Vietnam War, and that is how he earned his citizenship. And after my mom left New York as a child, she moved to East Los Angeles, and my parents met in East Los Angeles and kind of have raised their family in the LA area. And I had a really cool, I think it's pretty cool. Some people think it's a little bit odd. Um, I was homeschooled, my mother homeschooled all five children. And so the house was always loud. It was always a little bit chaotic, but she was a firm believer in creativity. And so while other kids were, you know, getting ready to go to school, uh, my sister and I were building like, uh, blanket and pillow forts in the living room and we would do science experiments in the back and I didn't learn to read till I was almost 11 and my mom was like that's okay you're being creative and so um I kind of had this random childhood but it was one of the best so you didn't learn to read until you were 11 I didn't yeah you know it's it's I think I've always been a late bloomer. I haven't been one of those kids who, um, you know, is top of the class or a real standout initially. Well, if you um, if you're homeschooled, wouldn't you be at the top of the class? <laughs> I guess theoretically, theoretically, yes, yes. But I was homeschooled until I was 14. We matriculated into like the public school system for high school, and like most things in my life. I kind of had a slow start and um, I'm one of those people who it takes me a while to learn something, but the minute that I get it, I just set my mind to it and become determined. And um, even though I uh, learned to read really late in life, even though I didn't learn how to really take standardized tests until late in life, um, I'm now one of those people who I finished uh, top of the class in high school. I finished top of the class in college. I got a full academic ride to law school. And um, that doesn't come from smarts. It just comes from a lot of hard work. So I'm a late bloomer, but it pays off. So where were you on the family chart? Were you the youngest? Were you the oldest? Were you in the middle? Um, I am the eldest. However, I have a twin sister. And so I'm one minute older than she is. And I spent my entire life rubbing that in. I'll say like, as your older and wiser sister, let me tell you a few things. So yes, I'm the eldest. And what language was spoken in your house growing up for the most part? If, you're, if your parents came from, from South America and Central America? Um, my uh, English was print the primary spoken language in our home. However, um, my parents in living in Southern California have become very like accustomed uh, to speaking Spanglish, which is like a mix between Spanish and English. And um, for those uh, people maybe in Europe who aren't familiar with Spanglish because it's definitely like a street dialect, it's like, hey, como esta? So hey is not like a Spanish word. It's definitely American, but you just kind of get uh, a mix of English and Spanish mixed in. So I speak Spanish. I understand it a lot more than I actually speak it. But um, English is my lengua franca. Sounds a little bit like Sweden and Swanglish, what I'm going through right now. Really? Swedish and English, yes. 
Nice. I, I, I fully expect a lesson in, in Swinglish when I arrive. Well, I'm not your guy. I just, I struggle. I speak, I speak at the same level as my two-year-old. Okay. Okay. <laughs> anyway, you said, you said that you were slow, slow to get on board with things, um, with reading and things like that. Like what, what were some examples that you can think of when you're, when you're in your teens? Were you into athletics? Were you into music? Um, yes, yes. And yes, I was, um, I was, uh, into athletics in like the loosest term. I think, you know, in California, it's really encouraged that you have a lot of extracurricular activities. And so I played basketball in high school. I played, uh, I ran track and I was a cheerleader. So it was kind of like a mix of different things. Um, but I, I, I felt like, it was a disadvantage throughout childhood and adolescence to kind of have to work harder to be at the same level of a lot of other people. And for a while, I felt like I was handed like the short stick. But in retrospect, I really think that it set up a pattern in my life to work work really hard to get what you want because it's not going to be handed to you. So in retrospect, I'm happy to be a slow learner. So do you mean that you like you don't feel like you were naturally talented at things growing up? Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that by all intents and like standards, like people would look at me, let's say when I was 11, I didn't know how to read. I wasn't testing very well in California standardized tests to measure childhood achievement. Um, I was extraordinarily overweight. So when I was about 10 or 11, I weighed about 180 pounds and I was four foot 11 and I weighed more than my dad. So the doctors had a serious conversation with my parents and they said, your daughter is on the verge of obesity, if not suffering with childhood obesity. And I think that I spent my entire life working past, um, a lot of, of a lot of like, uh, a lot of expectations and probably not in the best way. So it's like in Southern California, a, a Hispanic female, the, the likelihood of her, ending up pregnant before she's 18 and not graduating high school is really high. And so given the fact that I wasn't raised in like the nicest of areas, that already was against me. The fact that I was extraordinarily overweight, the fact that I wasn't academically inclined or even athletically inclined, um, I think that the odds were like, whoa, this girl is destined to fail. And just to kind of um, break break those expectations, I think has been one of the, the proudest moments of like my adult life. Well, what was the area like if it wasn't that nice? Like, I mean, describe it. Oh, okay. So um, my sister and I joke with my dad and we say, dad, we were so poor. We couldn't even afford the last OR on that word. So we weren't poor. We were just po. So we had like government issued food in that like the government would send you um, like these tickets to where you can get food that what that was considered like what you needed to survive, which were like pinto beans, government issued cheese, uh, government issued like milk. And um, it was just really normal for like the area that we like lived in. It was normal that the government subsidized um, like trips to the library or, um, you know, it was normal. Like there was this carnival in our neighborhood at a local high school and, you know, everyone's just enjoying themselves. And all of a sudden there was like a drive-by shooting. And I'll never forget the fact that like my mom literally tackled my sister and I, and she threw her body over us. And once everything got cleared up, 
everybody went back to just enjoying the carnival. And I think that's the area that like I grew up in. It was really, it was rough and tough, which was part of the decision. My parents opted to homeschool us because kids were going to school and they had to go through metal detectors. And my parents, you know, my mother was a hippie and uh, my father just really wanted to do whatever made my mom feel happy and safe. And for her, that was, you know, making the decision to keep us away from like really tough, uh, tough moments on the street and just keep us in like a safe little bubble of being at home. With your personality, I mean, obviously you're, you're very outgoing uh, later in life now, but if you had a weight problem and it, it sounded like you grew up in a rougher neighborhood, like what was your personality like to kind of like overcome some of those challenges? Have you always been this outgoing? Um, you know, I have to say that uh, I feel like there's a dichotomy in my, my personality. Um, the person I was as a child um, due to being um, kind of being secluded, being a homeschooler, especially due to being extraordinarily overweight. And the fact that once I actually learned how to read, that was the only thing I ever did. So it was like a little switch that went off. And, you know, when I was like, I think 12 and a half or 13, I was reading War and Peace. And so like my parents would eat, uh, my mother would catch the bus with us and we would, she would take us to the library and the librarian had to tell my mom, I'm sorry, but your daughter seems to be checking out too many books at one time. We don't think she can read them all. And my mom had to speak to like the administrator of the library and say, my daughter's homeschooled and all she really wants to do is read. And so uh, they made an exception and we would dig out bags and bags of books. Um, but what that really caused me to become as a person is a watcher. So I am still very much today, um, a watcher. And I think that what has happened in light of the business is I've had to become more engaged. I've had to become so much more outgoing, but that is definitely a really, really sensitive part of my life because I have to be that person. I have to be outgoing when it comes to marketing and branding my business, but it is definitely not something that comes natural. I think one of the benefits of being an entrepreneur and business owner as a photographer is I still get to live out my childhood dreams in that like I get to read by myself and I get to work by myself the majority of the time. So, um, and, you know, I kind of won like the job lottery, but um, a lot of a lot of times what people see is like that outgoing, vivacious person. And um, I think the thing I would love people to really understand is like it's a part that I have to, you know, put on as um as a t tangential element to my business, but the person, the, the more real me is the girl who's sitting like right now in sweatpants and a tank top, the dog is at my feet, I have a cup of iced coffee and I'm sitting in front of a computer looking at a ton of photos. That's the real me. So would you say you were, you were an introvert throughout your teens then and then became an extrovert after that? Or would you say that you've always sort of been an introvert and that hasn't changed? Um, I am what I call and what has been like kind of broken up. Um, I, I took this intro. I did. I took an extended, um, an extensive introvert extrovert test. And so I spent an hour taking the test. And what I discovered was that I'm an outgoing introvert to where if I have to be in a public setting, I could definitely handle myself. I'm not like in the corner, like shaking, um, even though what I would prefer to be, I would prefer to be the girl by the fried food station at a networking event, just stuffing my face with like egg rolls. You know, like that's, that's definitely more me. 
Um, but how I derive energy, that's how the, that's how they define who an introvert or an extrovert is, is if you get energy by being around people and you're the person who likes to spend the entire night just talking and mingling, and that makes you feel alive. That makes you more of an extrovert. When I get put into a very large setting with a lot of people, I can handle it, but I feel completely depleted by the end of it. And I feel like uh, very exposed. And so sometimes after being at a large event or conference, it's like, I just need to go to my hotel room and just sit in silence for like 45 minutes and then I'm charged up again. So I'm a quintessential introvert. So going through your teens, what did you think you would end up doing? What, what sort of things did you uh, apply to, to universities for or anything like that? Did you go to post-secondary education? I did. So here in the States, you have high school, which is mandatory, and then an optional four-year curriculum, which is what we refer to as college or university. And I earned a degree in business administration. And then shortly thereafter, I applied to go to law school, which is a three-year program. And so I got into some really great uh, law schools, which I'm very proud of. Um, but I ended up choosing uh, UCLA, which is located here in Los Angeles. And it's a pretty, it's a top 20 prestigious like law school here in the States. And I was very honored to get a full ride scholarship based on academics. So I thought in my life that I would, um, choose a profession <clears throat> that enabled me to use my mind, but also be able to one control the amount of time that I was in front of people. And I really like working by myself or work, having elements of that. And I felt like being a lawyer really lent itself to that, um, in a larger capacity. When you did your undergrad in business, what, uh, what was your focus? Was it marketing? Was it accounting? Was it economics? Um, at our school, at our school, you earned you earned just your discipline in business administration. But I did have I did enjoy a lot of like my marketing classes and my branding classes, which was probably no surprise. But um, yes, I I graduated with a four So I think that. Um, I really tried hard in all of my classes, even though I think that I had a penchant for marketing and branding early so on. So if, if marketing and branding was interesting to you, I, I studied marketing and branding as well. And I remember my first lesson, um, the very first time I sat down in a marketing class, the teacher wrote on the board, money is not a motivator. And that was that was like my first lesson that I'll never forget. Do you have a lesson that you, uh, you remember from your first time sitting down in a marketing or, or a branding classroom? I do. That's such a great question. Yes. Um, one of the things that really struck me by one of my professors is that he said, if the one, if there's one thing that you remember taking his class is that people matter. And that's what he wrote up on a whiteboard and it was people matter. And then he put it, then he put a period. And he said that no matter how good your marketing is or how good your branding is or how good your service or product is, is that it's nothing without people behind it who believe in it and who support it. And thirdly, who will talk about it. That is truly the essence of marketing and branding. And I feel like absolutely positively, it was one of the things I remembered from his course and have implemented in my business years So later. metaphorically, if you were to sit in front of a class now and you were the teacher, what do you think you would write on the blackboard or whiteboard? I guess you have whiteboards in the States. I grew up with a blackboard. <laughs> we do. We do. We're, you know, we, we, we are. We, like anything that will make Americans messy, we stay away from. So whiteboards. <laughs> yeah. So um, I would probably, I would probably uh, put the same sentence, except I would put quotes around it. And I would say Dr. Decker, because that was the professor who first um, 
said that to me and I would pass it on to any entrepreneur business owner is that people matter. Yes, what we do, we love being creative and we love producing things, but without the people to produce them for that our business just doesn't exist in the in the arena in the magnitude as it should. So when you were going to university, uh, did you have any jobs on the go? Did you have any side projects that that were interesting to you or was it just school? Uh, no, I definitely had a, a few irons in the fire. Uh, I went to undergrad when I was studying business and I earned a full ride scholarship, uh, primarily due to the fact that my parents didn't have money to send us to college and also for the fact that I graduated um, at the top of my class in high school. And so they covered um, tuition and room and board, but anything else, like I had a car payment. I, if I wanted to go out to with, with friends. And so part of my scholarships was taking um, a, a job on campus and I would work, you know, like eight hours a week or 10 hours a week. And then that would go towards diminishing the cost of my tuition, but that didn't necessarily put cash in my pocket. And so I took a job being a waitress. And so I was a waitress all through college and even a little bit after, uh, after I graduated. So there I was, you know, graduating top of my class and I had to get a job in between me uh, going to law school. So I went back and I started working at this barbecue joint and uh, I was slinging ribs, you know, on my way to call, I mean, on my way to law school, having graduated top of my class. And it was, it was definitely a lesson in humility. Um, but you know what? There are very few people who could sell ribs as well as I can, which I think is pretty ironic considering that I'm a vegetarian, but you know. Have you always been a vegetarian? A vegetarian since I was 11 years old, which is really crazy seeing how I'm coming from like a Hispanic family. And so like in Latino families, like you eat meat. And so when I, you know, when I tried telling my parents like, no, I don't really want meat for dinner. Um, they were like, okay, well, we're going to give you chicken. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no. I don't want anything that has eyeballs. And my parents thought that it was a phase because like I mentioned before, I was really overweight. And so they had, they sat me down and had a serious conversation and they said, we think that you're beautiful just the way you are. And if you want to lose weight, you know, it's not by not eating meat. And I, at the time I was a child and completely unaware of how large I was. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I just don't want to eat anything with eyelashes. And my parents being like the ever just kind of like free flowing, empowering their children, parents that they were, they said, okay, that's fine. And thought it was a phase I was going to grow out of. And like decades later, I'm still not eating meat. And so I guess I, I proved my parents wrong. It definitely wasn't a phase. So the cheerleading that you did when you were younger, did you continue doing that or any other sort of activities? Because your weight obviously you know, you're, you grew into your body, if you want to say that, like, you, you weren't overweight growing up, like now. So what did you do that was active? And how did you lose the weight? And when did that happen? I was I've actually been I've actually been like thick or fluffy. However, um, most however you want to choose the words um, curvy, I've been like thick, fluffy, curvy my entire life. So even when I um, played sports in high school. And when I was a cheerleader, I definitely was still like on the thicker, on the thicker side. It wasn't until I got to college that I, I actually, it wasn't until I moved away to go to college that I started understanding that, um, just like the amount of food and the type of food that my family, like we grew up on, um, it's, it's delicious, but it's probably not something you should be eating a lot of all the time. And so it was then that I really changed my my eating uh, my eating habits and started 
um, working out with a lot more intention and understanding that food is a thing that powers your body, but it shouldn't be the thing that you live for, which was actually a complete like reversal in how I view food. Um, so it probably wasn't until I was around like 22, 23, that I really started understanding that I had to make a lifestyle change. That's interesting. So did you ever have any like, like severe self-confidence issues with, from your weight growing up or anything like that? Or was it just, this is how I am and you just accept it and you've always just been very confident? Oh, no, I wish. I look at girls who are extraordinarily self-confident and they just embrace everything about them. And it has definitely been a battle. I, I think that most females may kind of like struggle in some sense, but I think that because it was a distinct roller coaster and being very, very large and trying to find your voice, trying to find yourself in the midst of that, it definitely did a number on like my self-esteem. And again, I never was, I never wanted to be the person noticed in a room because I feel like when I was noticed, it was because of like my size or it was because of my shape. And I think years later, I still don't want to be the girl who's noticed in the room, but now it's for different reasons. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm glad that I could see it for what it was. So UCLA, what happened with that? And what happened with the other law schools? It sounded like that was a, a pretty secured path. It was, it, or at least I thought it was, you know, I felt like I worked really hard. I thought this is what I wanted to do. And, um, I went to law school and during my first year, my mother had a relapse with brain cancer and she had a brain cancer that affected her central nervous system. So all parts of her body were, um, like relegated her to be invalid for quite a few years. And so it was a really hard time. She was first diagnosed when I was in college and I didn't really have the traditional like collegiate experience. Like she was diagnosed my uh, third year of school. So half of the time I spent in college, I was driving home um, every weekend when driving home, maybe like once a week because I have younger siblings and um, my mom couldn't get out of bed. So I would drive home and I would make dinner and do the laundry and take my brother to basketball practice, take my sister to like her tutoring lessons, drop them off and then drive back to school. So um, that was a really hard time in life, but we made it through and we were stronger as a family. And then when I went to law school, um, my mom had a relapse and the doctors just said that it was aggressively affecting her body and that they were going to stop all forms of chemotherapy because they wanted her to have quality of life. And so it really rocked our world. It was probably a time in my life where I truly, truly battled with depression and I just... I woke up one morning and I didn't consult with anybody. I just knew in my heart that if it was going to be my mom's like last month on earth, I wanted to be with her and I didn't, I couldn't concentrate on school. And so I walked into the Dean's office and I like, I literally woke up and I walked into the office. Like there was no, there was no backstory to the day. I just simply said, I need to go home. I need to take a medical leave and be with my mom. And the dean was very understanding. And she had said, um, you have three years to come back and get your scholarships. And I looked at her and I said, I will absolutely be back in three it, it, within that time to reclaim my scholarships. But I just need to be home with my mom. And she was very understanding. And I had to go to school, file paperwork to, that I was stating that I was going to leave school. And part of my scholarship was that they paid for my 
campus housing. But since I was no longer technically a student, I was no longer longer eligible for the housing. So on the same day that I quit law school was the same day that I realized I needed to find a place to live in Los Angeles and in the Brentwood Westwood area of where I was living. It's extraordinarily difficult to find an apartment, especially like with one day notice. And so I called my boyfriend at the time, JD, and I said, hey, I left law school. And he said, awesome. Do you want to get dinner tonight? And I said, no, I left law school. And so there's like that moment of like disbelief. But after I had explained that I just really wanted to be with my mom, he chivalrously drove his car to my apartment and he packed up my entire apartment. And I went back to the one place that I knew like a light would always be on, which was my parents' home. So there I was like 24 years old and I had just quit law school. I didn't have an apartment. I didn't have a job, but I went upstairs when I arrived and my mom was in her bed and I just crawled into bed with her and I like smelled her head and I smelled her room. And I just knew like in that moment, I felt, wow, I just made the best decision of my life. And so that night I went back down to my bedroom, the one that still had like my cheer uniform in it. And it had like, uh, in sync posters on the wall. And when I woke up the following morning, all I could think was, oh my God, I think I just made the worst decision of my life. And so I went through this whole gamut of emotions. And the one thing I knew I wanted was uh, my mom to see me get married. I had been dating JD, my boyfriend, now husband, at the time for eight and a half years. And so I said, I just want my mom to see me get married. And so he proposed. And we planned a wedding in three months and we planned it in Hawaii. And the doctors were just, they said, we don't think that she'll be able to go with you, but we still planned it. And we just took a step of faith and we're like, okay, we believe that she's going to be there. And against all odds, my mom and my dad walked me down an aisle and I got married in Hawaii to my best friend. So that's the long answer to what happened with law school. All right. With, with the, where your mom was, was not well, um, was that the same house that you were raised in? It was. It was. So a rougher neighborhood, um, kind of like how you described it was it was a poorer neighborhood, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you for the, no, that, thanks for the clarification. So my parents moved when I was 15. And so in my mind, I spent like half of my life in like a rougher neighborhood and then half of my life in like a slightly nicer neighborhood it's it was it's definitely lower middle class but seeing where we came from it was like a definite huge huge difference which is why my parents wanted us or allowed us to go to public school at the time so how did your dad handle all of this i mean i'm just i have two little girls and i'm just picturing a father with five kids uh and a sick wife and a lot going on like how who supported your dad and how did your dad handle all this um, you know, I think that my father is one of the most incredible men alive and obviously I sound biased, but, um, you know, he, he, he immigrated and he doesn't really have a familial network, you know, here in, um, in, in the States and, um, during like the toughest moments when everybody was cracking around him, he had to be strong and without sounding like too overtly religious, my father is a pastor. And so there were moments where it feels like life is just so incredibly ugly and sad. And yet he found this inner strength and he attributed it entirely just to God meeting him like right where he was. And so people can look at that and kind of like view it skeptically. But after seeing everything my mom went through, after seeing everything, the pain that he went through, um, I can't help but feel like 
Like your idea of God is what I want, because if you can make it through that, anybody can make it through anything. And the best part of the story that I don't want to leave out is that against all odds, my mother fully recovered and she's now a survivor from cancer and she's been cancer free for almost nine years, which is absolutely fantastically incredible. So, I mean, that's the highlight of the story. And I just think it's pretty darn incredible. She's a fighter and my dad's faith was like a testament to the family. So it was a big deal and it still is a big deal. So what sort of things did your dad teach you about dealing with people? And did he give you any, uh, any sort of things to think about when dealing with people, if he was a pastor that, that affected your business now? He provided insight my entire life, but, um, you know, I think that things that we grew up on, like learning just from like, uh, from like a spiritual standpoint can be applied to the business world. And that's treat others how you want to be treated. The golden rule. The golden rule. Exactly. Exactly. And as simple as it, as simple as it seems, sometimes as entrepreneurs, it's extraordinarily difficult because you feel like you are right. And you feel like you, and you feel misunderstood. And even in those like hardest moments, you must think, if I was in their situation, how would I want to be treated? And against, it goes against the grain, but you must just turn around and say, what do you need in this moment? And I will do that for you. You know, it's very simple and yet so hard, but um, that's kind of like the biggest one. So JD, uh, if I got the numbers right, you started dating when you were 16? <laughs> yes, my, you're a mathematician. Yeah, I was just about to turn 17. And I guess you met him at high school. How did, where did you meet him for the first time? Oh, we went, okay, so we went to, we went to high schools in the same school district, not the exact same high school. So there were three schools in our school district. He went to one and I went to an, another. And um, we were introduced by way of a, a school, a guidance counselor who went from my school to his school every other day of the week. And um, we put together a fundraiser to raise money for families who couldn't afford a Thanksgiving dinner. And both our schools got together for it. And the counselor introduced me to him. And I remember thinking to myself, this man is, I mean, this man, I, this boy, not man. He wasn't a man then. He was 16. But I said, this boy is so sweet. Like, he was such a, like, such a nice guy to talk to. And um, our school played football against their school a, a couple weeks later. And he just said, okay, I'll see you at the football game. And I remember walking away thinking, I wish he went to my school because he's such a great guy. And then the counselor, I know this sounds a little bit creepy, but the counselor um, and asked me to go to his office and he said, hey, I think you should write a letter to JD and I'll deliver it to him. And he did this like every other day. So he became a courier between each school. And so he would pull me out of my, my fourth period physics class. And then I would get her, I would read a note from JD and I would be like so excited and giddy. And then I would pull out a piece of like line paper and write him a letter back and said, I'm in physics. Um, I wonder what you're going to do this weekend. Totally silly, like high school stuff. Um, but all these years later, uh, we still have that box of the letters that we exchanged between each other. And uh, we started dating. Um, but when I was 17, like we, we met when we were 16, started dating when I was 17. And uh, we've been together ever since. And he's the best thing that has ever happened to my life. Well, that sounds like a nice movie. I'm sure that <laughs> you can work on that eventually. <laughs> so it sounds like he's been through, th through the thick and the thin with you, with law school and your mother's uh, health issues and things like that. So when you were planning your wedding, I 
bet you didn't think you were going to be a wedding photographer, right? You know, after my mom walked me down the aisle, it really changed my perspective because it was her health and um, me actually looking and trying to find a wedding photographer that really opened my eyes to wedding photography being a viable career. Um, I'm a first generation Hispanic, first generation college student. So I had taken film photography classes in college, but I couldn't ever bring myself to actually pursue it because I just thought, how can I tell my parents that I want to pursue a career being a starving artist? So I ended up majoring in business, but lo and behold, as a byproduct of both my passion and business training, I was able to see that wedding photography could be a viable career option. I saw people who were sustaining lifestyles and livelihoods and also being really creative. And that was the first time that I actually saw it as a possibility for myself. So it seems to me, if I'm understanding this correctly, you were drawn to the business in the beginning, not necessarily the artistic side of it. Would you agree with that? No, I would say that I was first and foremost absolutely smitten with the artistry of it. Because, you know, for most, most of my life, all of the wedding photography, wedding photos I had seen were those like really traditional kind of really boring people using like fill flash against a, a backdrop that they brought to the wedding reception. And that's where all the wedding photos were. I mean, that was, that was the only experience that I had with it. And so then all of a sudden when I'm looking for a wedding photographer and I see people making beautiful photographs, like making artwork out of their photos, I thought, dear God, like, this is what it's about. And so um, to me, the way that my business training is, is I looked at it as can it be a career that I'm passionate and pursue artistic endeavors? And the answer is yes. But is it can it be something that's life sustaining? Because I couldn't afford to have a hobby. I left law school. So my options were leave a very a lucrative and substantial career. And if I was going to do that, I needed to ensure that the next career that I pursued was both fulfilling from a creative standpoint, but also from a financial standpoint as well. So we'll come back to that in a second, but can you describe what your parents' wedding photos were like? Oh my goodness. Like, okay, so here in the States, um, there's a few like Southern states and they say, bless your heart. And when you say bless your heart, that's really like a diss of epic proportions. That's kind of like you're really dumb or that's really terrible. So when you ask me about my parents' wedding photos, my response would be bless their hearts. Um, they had no money like whatsoever to put together a wedding. In fact, my father proposed to my mom in the front of his VW bug when they're driving down the freeway and he didn't have a ring and he just said, hey, you want to get married? And she said, yes. And that was the big proposal. And so they had a potluck wedding in the basement of a Baptist church in East Los Angeles. And there was a friend of a friend who had just gotten a camera and they said, bring your camera, shoot a few photos. So my parents' photos are in like this really like lime green photo album. And um, they're like the original hipsters, like their photos. My mom wore this big brimmed hat and my dad wore a cream colored suit and uh, they took pictures in their VW bug. So I think the photos are special for sentimental reasons, but they're really, really, really terrible from a technical standpoint. Well, that's all right. I mean, if you, I'm, I'm curious because it seems like, I don't know, lately I've just been thinking about wedding photos and regardless if it's perfect and comp composed great and everything, if you're to, sat, to sit down with some, some older couples or a widow or something like that, they're going to talk about their pictures in a certain way and you still have your parents around. I wonder if you ever talk to your parents about their wedding photos because of what you do. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And now that my parents have seen, you know, what I do as a wedding photographer, they often say, wow, I wish we would have invested more in it, but I don't think that it takes away from the memories that are captured in their photos. Sure, they're maybe not exactly the most artistic, but the fact that my mom has photos of her and her mom together and her and her dad who have now passed, um, those are priceless. So whether or not they're like the most amazing photos, to her, they're beautiful and perfect and she probably wouldn't change a thing about them. So coming back to how you started out, like if I'm to talk about myself and how I started in this business and, and maybe Jakob as well, if there, was a, if there was a scale and on one end of the scale, it was total business mind and on the other end of the scale, it was an artist. And you look at the scale and kind of like had to peg where I would, would have fallen. It would have been totally on the business side of it when I started. I was not an artist as well, at all. Where do you think you would have fallen? Um... To be honest, if I'm just being completely transparent, I don't even think I would I would land anywhere on that spectrum because I had no business training whatsoever and I had no photographic training whatsoever. Well, I was, didn't didn't you have a didn't you have a degree in business? Oh yes, but I mean my degree in business, if I being completely honest, is completely wasteful because I studied businesses in Fortune 500 companies. I studied businesses where they had a a plethora of people at the helm leading this thousand person organization. And that's fine and wonderful. I could tell you how Starbucks branded, how Nike branded, how Nordstrom has become a leader in customer service. But I couldn't tell you how to do that for a single girl or like a young female entrepreneur in Los Angeles with no money, no training and no experience. I mean, it, it's, business is great in theory. But when it actually comes to doing it for yourself, it was an entirely different mess. It sounds like you have a, a corporate um, kind of business background where the tactics maybe aren't as applicable to a small bit, small business, small time entrepreneur. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. 100%. So you just kind of picked a wedding photographer for your wedding, um, saw whatever this person was doing and got heavily inspired and just went for it after that? That's exactly, that's exactly what happened, 100%. And I think that it, that could make so many wedding photographers cringe because whenever I read things online and other photographers are like, oh, she's just a soccer mom or oh, she's just a girl out of college with a camera, I kind of have to stand in that category as well and say, I too am that person. I do not have formal training. And a lot of people um, perhaps resent that but I also stand as a source of encouragement for a lot of people to say, even though you don't have uh, classic training in small business entrepreneurship, even if you don't have classic training in photography, you could still be wildly successful and create a lifestyle and a career. So the film photography course that you took when you were in your university, that didn't really like that didn't really count or didn't really like help you in any way? Well, it was, so I went to a small liberal arts college and so they didn't have a photographic discipline. So they had a few, like in the entire curriculum, they had two photo classes um, a year. So one in each semester. And so, yes, I learned how to develop my own film in like a dark room and that was wonderful and it was great. But the class itself was a socio, um, was a sociology class. So we didn't learn, like I didn't learn rule of thirds or leading lines or focal points or anything like that. It was literally, how can we document a sociological perspective by way of photography? So when I say I took photography classes, it was kind of like an ad hoc photography class. So I wouldn't say that I was trained in it. Well, 
whatsoever. This was 2005 when you started then, is that right? Well, I got my camera in 2000, in Christmas of 2005. Okay. So you got a camera, Christmas of 2005, and then what? I mean, did you just say, all right, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to get the papers registered and here I go. Like, or was it, was it a slow, slow go or like, how did you get into the business? Um, my husband got me a camera in on Christmas of 2005. And then I, I decided I wanted to have a year of new beginnings. And so I opened the camera. It was a Canon 20D on January 1st, 2006. And I became very active in online photography forums. And every night after work, I would come home and I would just read Google on uh, aperture and shutter speed. And so I kind of just watched videos. And I, whenever I had questions, I would be really involved with like online communities. And it was by way of this online community um, that there was a photographer who said he needed a second photographer and it was his very first wedding shooting it on his own. And so I threw my hat in the ring and I said, Hey, I'd love to join you as your second shooter. And there were so many people who offered. And I think that I was chosen because I was really active and I would try to support people like within the community. And even though we had him in person, he saw my name and my face a lot, just kind of being a participant. And he said, sure. He said, I won't be able to pay you, but if you come along and I can use your images, then you could use your images in your portfolio. And that was in April of 2006. So I was just really practicing really a lot on my own for about four or five months. And I shot my very first second shooting wedding with him. And then a couple months later, another photographer had invited me to join as a second shooter. And then I started just posting my photos in an online group and I got connected with those photographers. And one photographer hired me as his consistent second shooter that year. And so between him and like four other photographers, I second shot about 35 or 40 weddings that summer. So every weekend, sometimes two or three times a weekend, I would be shooting with other photographers. And then I shot my very first wedding in October of 2006. And would you say that your personality at that time was, I mean, it's obviously you have way more experience and it's a different world for you today, but were you as outgoing then as you are now? Uh, no, it was a learned, it was a learned trait. Um, and I think that it suited me very well to be a second photographer because I wasn't kind of like a, a go in and take charge kind of person. So I was able to see how a lot of different photographers worked and I was able to see things that I liked and things that I didn't want to implement in my business. So they essentially by osmosis taught me how to be a first photographer and taught me how to be outgoing and be assertive, the same type of assertiveness you need on a wedding day. So you learned on your feet, but it sounds like you did it the right way. You were second shooting and you were paying your dues. I would like to think yes. <laughs> well, that's what it sounds like. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, I, I, you know, even still to this day, and perhaps it stems from childhood, I don't know how to like take complete ownership over something that I feel really proud of. So I, I usually come across as just dismissive as, oh, yeah, sure, certainly it could be that. But, <laughs> you know, probably, yes, you're right. You are right. <laughs> So 2006, you kind of got your feet wet and then it sounds like things grew pretty quickly because in 2009, if I read correctly, that's when you started winning awards and accolades. But when did you start to feel like things would be viable and, and that you could have a career doing this? Uh, great question. So I shot my very first wedding in October of 2006 and then I booked two other weddings in 2006. So in 2006, I booked a total of three weddings. And then in 2007, I booked a total of 38 weddings. And that was all by word of mouth, marketing, and creating an online presence. I didn't have any money to invest um, in formalized 
forms of marketing. And so I did that all like grassroots and elbow grease. And in 2007 was when I realized that it could be a viable career option for myself. And so I quit my job in um, April. What was your job? Um, I worked for, um, I worked at my dad's church. <laughs> I, uh, I just did like organization and management for, um, just like technical stuff, like behind the scenes. And so it was nepotism at its finest. <laughs> so 2007 sounded like a pretty good year. If that was your first year, more or less on your own as a first shooter, that was, that's a, that's a great, great number for your first year. Did you, do you think that working at the church and maybe people in that community helped you? Uh, and I, I asked that question because I think back to Vancouver where, where we sort of licked our chops and there were very various pockets of, of communities. So there would be Sikh communities and they would have their photographer and there would be Catholic communities and they'd have their photographer. Do you think that there was a religious thing uh, in your community that helped you get, get going or did you just kind of feed off of the second shooting gigs and get referrals from there? Oh my gosh, Cole, that is such a good question. Like you seriously could be a professional interviewer. I'm not lying. I've done a few of these and these are awesome questions. Thank wow. you. This is my first interview. So. Oh, really? Wow. Dang, man. Okay. I got to up my interview game. Dang. Okay. <laughs> um, to be honest, it was the complete antithesis of that. It's as if um, people in the community and, and say my father's church community and my church community, they viewed me as just a girl with a camera. I was never a viable professional photographer option at all. In fact, I will never forget um, one of like huh, one of my coworkers at the time, he had proposed to his girlfriend, and I offered to shoot his engagement session for free because I wanted to practice. And he passed on it. He said, "No thanks," just like that. And so um, I, I was one of the most sobering times in my early career. And I thought, how embarrassing! Like this is really awful. But I'm glad. I'm glad that I had. And I think it just stems from like that childhood. Hutzpah is like, I'm happy when things aren't easy. At the moment, I'm not happy. But in retrospect, I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful that I had to fight to get clients the way that anybody would without a formalized network. And I didn't shoot a single wedding at my father's church until like four years after I had started my business. So <clears throat> the gigs and the weddings and the couples, they, they weren't handed to you necessarily. So what were some of the things you were doing to, to hustle them to get your, your, your name out there? I, I could share some real shameless stuff that Jakob and I have done with Nordica, but this is about you. So do you have any, do you have any like first time marketing experiments that uh, you look back on? Uh, yeah, but I definitely still want, I mean, so once the interview is over, like, I definitely want to hear those stories, either that or like for a drink when, we, you know, uh, at Way Up North, I'd love to hear all those endeavors. We'll do the drink, the drink option. Okay, okay, okay. Um, you know, it's, um, it's crazy. The first three weddings that I booked, uh, let's see, the first wedding I booked um, was a referral from a photographer that I had worked with. And she had a budget of $1,000. And at the time, he was charging eight or 9000 And so he just gave it to me. And I would have taken a wedding, whatever, whatever she would have paid me, I would have shot the wedding for that. And that was what ended up being the case. But the second wedding that I received, um, and the third came by way of me writing online. And so I had started a blog and the blog, what I told my husband, I said, this blog is merely going to document my failures because when I go back to law school, I don't want to look back and say, oh, I didn't try. So this blog is going to force me to like document the ups and downs of the journey. And so I, the first wedding that I had booked, I, I did a blog post about my mom's really rare form of cancer. 
And I talked about like, even though she was in remission, her life will be filled with a lot of health complications. And so I did a blog post about just really one hard day. It was a really awful, crappy day. And I was at the grocery store and I was shopping for tomatoes. And I found myself just crying into a bin of tomatoes because it was really hard. And a girl had done a Google search on that type of cancer because some a family member had, was diagnosed with it and she came across my blog. Now she wasn't looking for a wedding photographer, but the, another girl at the dentist office she worked was looking for a wedding photographer. So she found my blog to find like solace and like support. But when she also noticed that I was shooting weddings, she sent like her girlfriend to my blog. And at the time I didn't have a website and I didn't have any, like an online gallery. So I just burned a lot of photos. Um, on iPhoto and I made a DVD and I just like wrapped up this DVD in a bow and I, I printed out like a letter from my computer and I mailed it to her. So that was like my first portfolio piece, which is pretty ghetto fabulous, but she booked the wedding, you know, she booked the wedding. So, um, it was, it was pretty great. And the, another, the third wedding that I shot in my very first year was also by way of just her stumbling across doing a Google search and finding, finding my work online. Wow. Nice. So when Jakob and I started our business, two lessons that uh, we were told when when we first got off the ground um, that we'll never forget that because we we look back on those today and very fondly. So the two lessons were double your prices, and we did that. It was the best thing that we did at the time. And the other lesson that we were we were taught was I can't afford me, and we thought that was a great lesson. So what were some of the lessons, or one in particular, that someone said to you in 2006, 2007, when you were, when you were first starting that, that stuck with you? Uh, one of the first, the very things that had just like a profound difference in my life was um, when a photographer had said, jump and the net will appear. And I feel like my whole life I've been on this precipice of trying to do something bigger and yet having the inability or the fear to actually take that first step. And so once he just like looked at me and said, jump and the net will appear, that was the first, that was somebody giving me permission to make a foolish decision and somehow make it work. And that has been like the foundation for the decisions that I've made in the, in the past decade as a result. And very much just like the same principle that you guys had learned is I can't afford me. And I have to understand that every, I have to stand by my prices and I have to say that even though I couldn't afford them, I know that there are people who can and will pay them. So it's easier to, to, have that approach now, obviously, that you're established. So how did you, you know, find, how did you get established throughout the years? Because I mean, we all know how it can be when you're starting out, you're going to lower your prices in some case, because you see a wedding that you'll photograph for potential, because maybe it'll grow into bigger things. So do you think that you've always been cutthroat with your pricing? Or did you kind of like grow into that? I think, you know, I um, starting at $1,000 in the Los Angeles, Orange County area is really, really, uh, you are like bargain barrel kind of photographer. So um, I wouldn't necessarily say at all that I was cutthroat. I was actually just desperate and I would have taken whatever somebody would have paid me at the time. But I quickly realized that if I didn't make a profit on my business, I had a hobby, a really expensive hobby. And so that's not something that I really wanted in my life. And so basic tenants and principles that I applied to my business was every three weddings I booked, I raised my prices $300. And so early on in my career, I had established what my fixed costs were. And um, every as a result, every time I raised my prices $300, once my fixed costs were already in place, that additional $300 became profit. And the next three weddings, 
became $600 profit. And the next three weddings was $900 profit. And because of like how quickly the business grew, we started off shooting weddings for $1,000, $1,500. And then within our second year, we were in that $4,500, $5,500 price range. Who's we? JD and I. Okay. So he's been, he's been by your side with the business since day one? He was... Yeah, I would say yes, n- although not formally. He officially joined my business uh, full-time five years ago, but from day one, he was by my side, and he has second shot every wedding with me. So the <laughs> really? business is, yes, the business is Jasmine Star, but little do people know that JD is my secret weapon. He's the reason why we're successful. So you're mentioning how you kind of had your pricing evolve a little bit and when you're starting out and your prices are at a thousand dollars and you don't have too many things on the go like what sort of fixed costs do you actually have well i was um um allocating fixed costs according to what it would cost for actually me to shoot the wedding so um i had a fixed cost of what it would cost to host in a gallery i would have an online gallery for my clients and so that was a fixed cost and still today um i i I have I host my images by way of Pixie Set, and so Pixie Set charges me thirty two dollars um, a month. And so in my mind, the way that I just allocated was a fixed cost for me for a gallery for one of my weddings was going to be somewhere in the ballpark of thirty to thirty five dollars. So every wedding I booked, I needed to at least know that my fixed cost for the gallery itself was thirty five dollars. At the time, I no longer do this, but at the time, I was sending a disc of digital images. So fixed cost for me was the cost of the disc itself, a cost for the shipping, a cost for the packaging. Those were all fixed costs. In addition to um, a fixed cost for me would be gear rental. I didn't have a lot of gear when I first started out. So whatever I charged for the wedding, I had to at minimum cover the cost of my fixed cost and rental and things of that nature. So being somewhat business savvy because you did get a business degree, did you look at wedding photography as the type of business that had extremely low fixed costs and see the opportunity for the profit? Um, I actually didn't do a business assessment. I simply just stepped out and said, like, I see that people are making this a career and can make it a career. So I didn't bog myself down with the actual feasibility of it because I think that my entire life I had spent figuring out the logistics, feasibility, and hedging my bets. And for the first time in my life, I wanted to be free of that. I simply wanted to say, I want, and and this is what JD had told me. He said, when I, when I had to make the decision to go back to law school or to decide to pursue a career on my own, he had told me, I would rather see you fail at something you love than succeed at something you hate. And he said, in the worst case scenario, I'm sorry, that's my dog barking in the background. Hold on one second. Yep. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to peel back that just in case uh, that wants to be edited out. So, or unless you want to leave my dog barking. Yeah, leave good. it in. Oh, it's all okay, good. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Yes, so that's my dog. He made an appearance on the podcast. Um, I think that um, he, had, he, had told, he had given me encouragement, but then he said in the worst case scenario, he's like, you go back to law school. You go back to the predictable path. And I just felt like hell not to go back to the predictable path. And so I didn't want to think about the logistics and I didn't want to think about what was reasonable or what was predictable. So no, I didn't do any business assessments about it being low fixed costs and me having a high probability for profitability early out. No. So that quote that uh, JD shared, isn't that a George Burns quote? You know, I, you know, people have said that before and I think it's a derivative of it, but 
I think that for him, he just looked at me. I was sitting across the dinner table and I was crying into a plate of pasta. And I said, I'm just so sad. I'm so sad going back to it. And I don't know if JD even, um, even has a familiarity with George Burns, but maybe he's heard it somewhere before. Maybe he saw it on the Hallmark card. I have no idea. But at that moment, it was such a pivotal, pivotal thing, a pivotal moment of permission to actually say, just try it. Just try it because you've seen your mom. Like I was 25. My mom was 50 when the doctor said she was going to pass. And so I literally had a midlife crisis. I thought to myself, if I die when I'm 50, I don't want to die a lawyer. And so just to have somebody sitting across from you saying like, hey, like just try happiness for once and see if it works. And the fact that it did is like, it, I, owe, I owe him so much for that. So with the artistic side of what you do, when did you start to feel like you had got enough experience that you were super confident in what you what you were doing so like the artistic side of the business was was really at a point where it was holding its own and the brand was starting to develop um I'll be completely honest I think that the the biggest part of like my business my trajectory has always been the artisanship of what I do I don't think that I've got to a point where I can say I have arrived um I think that maybe I'll never get to that point and I have to learn to be okay with it. And I have to understand that um, given the nature of what I do, if I am my own worst critic, then I'll, um, I'll take it back. I am my own worst critic. People can say really mean things on the internet and I say, oh, that's, that's nothing compared to how, how, uh, how poorly I talk about myself and my work. Um, I think that it's been a hybrid. I think that the business has grown alongside my maturity as a photographer. But I always think that in the nature of what we do, we have we have um, we have singular clients. Our goal is not to shoot multiple weddings for the same client. Right. We want our clients to stay married. Um, so for me, every year is a new hustle. I never think that, oh, the brand is where it should be. And, oh, my work is where it should be. So the work will just come to me now. I don't feel like that at all. Well, there maybe there was a point where you like, I'll just speak for myself and, and maybe Jakob as well. But there's a point where you stop shitting yourself when you show up to a wedding because you feel like you know your stuff and the art, the artist in you is, is starting to develop a voice. I guess that's that was what I was curious about, because when, when you first start out, I mean, you just you don't just jump in necessarily and, and you've got it. So I'm curious, when did you feel like you were growing into a style? Um, that would pro I would probably say mm, like four years into my business. So four years into your business and and up until that point, did you sort of see a niche for what kind of clients that you were interested in going for or did the niche sort of evolve for you? The niche, the niche evolved for me. And I think that's just a byproduct of, um, the online branding that I did. And when I say online branding, it sounds like very business-like, but in all actuality, it was really just infusing my online presence with like my personality. And uh, what I discovered was that brides were hiring me for my work, but uh, with a very large degree, were hiring me because of me. And I think that's a very powerful component. So um, that was very gracious in like my, my learning curve and which is kind of really buttressed the, the brand to be people are hiring a photographer with my style, but more so they're hiring me to be there on their wedding day with them. Okay. So that's like a, a good segue into sort of who do you, who do you actually target? Like, and what I mean by that is, 
you do a lot of workshops and you do a lot of seminars and you photograph a lot of weddings and, and you create a lot of content online. And I mean, you just need to look at all your social media channels to, to understand that. So when you're creating this content, who do you think you're creating it for? Well, I understand that the brand is bifurcated. The brand is is uh, geared towards brides, but now as the business has matured and I share a lot of information, um, it's also for photographers. So the blog has become a division both for two different end clients, one being brides and another being photographers. So I'm very strategic in the amount of posts that I do on my blog or even social media is that like I do a lot of personal posts still. I do like one or two a week and I do one or two business photography related posts a week. And so I have to make sure that I, I remain balanced to those two clients. Um, but I, I do think that the blog has been bifurcated in, yes, we have half for photographers, half for uh, prospective clients, but in micro social media like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, I largely still think that it's a real showcase of my personality related specifically to brides. Why not? I'm just I'm just thinking aloud here. Like, why not just kind of overtly kind of target like only photographers? And wouldn't photographers slowly become your clients, the wedding clients? I mean, like. You know what I mean? Like the best clients for us are, are always photographers and artists and, and design minded visual people. So if we were in a position to kind of only cater to them, that would make sense to us. So for you, wouldn't it make sense to cater towards only artists? Yes and no. I could see that from from like a linear perspective, but the way that I would approach it would be that there is a strong possibility that like my approach doesn't resonate with artists. And so I want to resonate with whom I resonate with and that might be artists, but in the same token, it might not be. So I don't really think that I would ever divert a hundred percent of that, um, of that directional relational kind of component to it at all to, to one specific to one specific niche. This is interesting to me. So, because I'm interested in marketing and, and everything that we do, we we focus so much on who we're communicating with. Do you have that much of a focus on it, or do you just do you just kind of say this is me and you create stuff that's interesting for you? Oh, a hundred percent the latter. I've just learned throughout years. Like, you know, I have had like I've had my ass handed to me a couple times in the industry, and it's been humbling and it's been. A, a great lesson. And the thing that I think I diverted from, which was the core tenet of my belief when I started the business, was to be true to who I am. And at some point in my career, I felt like I had to be something. I had to do something more. I had to act like somebody else in order to uh, be validated within the industry. And I walked away from the very thing that I think is really me. And that's just to be me, to put out what I want, to be as transparent as possible. And if you like it, awesome. And if you don't, stop looking. And I think that that's one thing that I've come back to is I put out stuff that I really like. And if you like it, great. And if you don't, no sweat off my brow. So that's a good segue into um, the elephant in the room that I hope you're comfortable with me asking. Um, and what I mean is we... When we were marketing uh, way up north, the event here, um, we were interviewed by one uh, website. And the website, you never want to read the comments on websites, but we do anyways. And the first comment on this fairly large website was about you and something that happened. Um, and maybe you can just like 
address that. And maybe you know what I mean, and I don't need to go further, but uh, do you know what I'm talking about? I absolutely do. I appreciate you being really sensitive about it, but I'm going to be very open about it because um, there are a lot of people who really heard a lot of negative stuff. And so how about we start here for, for people who have no idea what we're talking about? What happened? That's that's great. So what happened is I started a blog in 2005, 2006. And since then have written have written 2000 plus blog posts. Three years ago, there were three, there were four blog posts all of them technically related. And I wrote the blog post and I did not cite the original source of content, which is a huge, massive faux pas, huge mistake, totally wrong on epic levels. And there were a group of people who combed through the, the blog posts and they noticed that I didn't cite the original and I was accused of plagiarism and the accusations were true. The thing that I wish a lot of large websites would have given me the opportunity to, even though I did it on my own social media, I just feel like it got so negative and it got so ugly and it got so, uh, it got so personal is I wish that I just had the opportunity to come out and say that back when those posts were written, I can look back and say, I was looking for a way to define myself as an artist because the biggest criticism that I received was, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She has no, she has no idea the technicalities of photography. And when I would read those things, it hurt so much because it was true. And so I put out content, like for example, there was one blog post, like how to shoot backlit. And the article was talking about how to shoot backlit in such a really technical form and they did such a great job with it and they related it to like nature photography or animal photography, portrait photography. And so I thought, let me use these same principles and apply it to what I do on a wedding day. And I was doing that because I wanted to define myself. I wanted to defend it and I did it all the wrong way. And I wish that I could just come out and say, hey, I do not know the technical terms. I do not know the technicalities. So here's the site that I found it from, and here's how I apply it on wedding day. Had I just done that, had I just had the cojones at the time to say, I am not enough, I don't know that. And I didn't. I was too afraid. I was too afraid of what people would say. And as a result, I re made really poor decisions, and I got called out on it, and it was humiliating and it was heartbreaking. And it gave a lot of people fodder to create a lot of other lies that surrounded the story. And I think that there was just as many lies as there were truth about it. And so I uh, wrote an article for F-Stoppers and I cleared up as much as I could. And there are going to be people who still hate everything about me. And there are people who will not forgive me. And I have to understand that I did the best I could to make amends. I wrote, I reached out to every single writer who... I didn't attribute credit to. And I said, I took this and I did not cite your website. I'm asking for forgiveness. And if there's anything that I could do as a result of it. And I heard back from three of the four people and they were very gracious. And for that, I'm indebted. I learned a huge lesson. It's to deal with other people's with other people with grace, even though you don't want to give grace to yourself. And people say, Oh, like, I can't believe she's just moved on. And it's like, no, there's been a lot, a lot of pain on the back end and a lot of like personal strife that you don't want to share all online. But um, it was a big lesson. And for those people who, you know, 
cannot see past it, I, I, I get it and I wish them the best. But for people who can and will and hopefully want to extend grace and forgiveness and like have me learn a lesson, then I appreciate that. And I have learned a lesson. Yeah, I can't. I, I can imagine that um, would grow thick skin with something like that uh, shaking down. So moving past that, um, surely that made you stronger in, in a lot of ways. You know, it's been about it's been about a year and a half. Um, yeah, about a year and a half since like the crap hit the fan. And you know, even talking about it right now, there's like a lump in my throat because it just um, it hits like at the core, at the core of like what you do. And like at the core of what I do is I really just want like to help people. And so I wrote all these things, and it's like I messed up. Like I did it to myself. I gave the people who hated me the fodder, the kindling that they needed to start a fire and publicly humiliate me. And, you know, it's taken a lot to kind of like move past that. And I still think that it's going to take a lot more time for me to continue to move past that. Um, whenever I see those articles, or whenever I see people bring it up again, it still hurts. It still hurts like the same with the same degree as it did the first time, you know, it happened out online. But um, yes. The, I have no other choice. You know, my, my two choices are move forward or quit and quitting isn't an option for me. And so if this, if, if the conversation we've had today has proven anything, it's, I'm the kind of person who, you know, if I have to fight back, I will. And I think that these are my attempts to do so. And I so appreciate the invitation to be at way up North and um, for both you and Jacob to extend that to me is, um, like amazing so thank you absolutely well what can we say but we're uh we're excited to have you up here so you're coming to sweden what do you know about sweden well i've done a little bit of research i already uh, am trying i'm trying really hard not to be a tacky tourist but um i really more than anything i know that there are a lot of great like touristy things to do i'm the kind of person who travels and i just want to i want to sit in a cafe and i want to just watch people the same way i did in childhood i want to take a book and I want to watch people. I want to see how they interact. I want to see, you know, what they do on a daily basis. I want to eat with locals. I want to stay away from like the touristy places. Um, and then I just want to connect with photographers in Europe. I'm so excited for that. Like really genuinely excited. Are there any presentations that you're, you're more curious about listening to than others? Well, I, okay. I'm just going to be real. I'll be honest with you. It's like when I looked at the lineup, uh, because for those people who are listening, they don't know. Um, all the speakers were invited um, independent. So it wasn't like a group email. So you didn't know who you were going to be speaking with. And so then when the website was launched and I saw all these like amazing people, I was like, I cannot believe that I get to be an attendee and a speaker at this cool event because these are like the cool photographers, you know? And then like, I like a little bit like an outlier but I'm happy there I'm just like I would rather be the uncoolest kid amongst the cool kids so I'm excited for seriously every single person I'm like beyond stoked to be sitting there taking notes and learning things along the way oh that's great so I think that about covers it Jasmine I've kept you on here a little bit longer than we said we would um, but I thank you for uh, for taking the time to chat well, thank you. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the invitation. I appreciate your time. I just appreciate the ability to connect with people and um, chat more about what we're all passionate about. So thank you. Rock and roll. Jasmine? I'm here. Sorry. I wasn't sure, I wasn't sure if that was your end. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> we could do that. We could do that. <laughs> no. All right. Take care. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye. So 
So that's that, the first episode of the Way Up North podcast. Thanks so much to Jasmine Starr for taking the time to participate in this podcast series. And thanks also to Jeremy Lim for the music in the podcast. If you aren't already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so by using the Acast app. Uh, Using Acast, you'll be able to find links and photos and videos that you can click for more information while you're listening. Or you can use any other podcast app of your choice like iTunes. Just search for Way Up North and you should be able to find it. Next up uh, will be the always awesome and super stylish wedding photographer Nessa Kessinger, so don't miss that. Talk soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.